Welcome to Recovery Devon Podcasts, we're a community interest company working to support mental health recovery in Devon. Our podcasts invite people with ideas of all kinds which explore mental health and what it means to be fully human. So thanks very much for being with us today. Uh, if you want to both tell me a bit about who you are and why you're here today, I'll start with Max. Yeah, hi, um, I'm Max Cohen. So um, I'm a counsellor, trainer and group facilitator. Um, so I work in Exeter, but I've just gone online. And um, so that's quite exciting. Um, so um, and I started up It's All About You Wellbeing, which is um, it's, it's a great collection of LGBT affirmative uh, counsellors and wellbeing practitioners um, across mainly Devon, but Cornwall as well. I've worked as a support worker for over 20 years within Devon and Cornwall, supporting people with different things going on in their lives. So, you know, things like domestic abuse and people living with HIV and young people's issues as well. So, um, yeah, I've, I've got quite a lot of support experience, but I think today is a bit about combining, you know, who I am and as a person with you know some of the things that hopefully help other people to come to terms with who they are and live their authentic life really so um, yeah great to see you anyway or listen to you (laughs) (laughs) oh it's lovely to see you too Max the last time that I saw you on camera was actually when you did a a daily for Recovery Devon and and same with with Ria who's joining us as well today morning Ria how are you doing I'm very well thanks good good do you want to tell us a bit about yourself okay I'm a counsellor and relationship therapist I'm based in Exeter but like Max I'm doing a lot of stuff online I first met Max about seven or eight years ago when I was training originally. Max was kind enough to introduce me to his project about It's All About You Wellbeing and was kind enough to tell me all about about LGBT stuff long before I ever knew a huge amount about it. I mean, I've always been interested, but I think he was probably my first point of contact, learned some stuff through him. And then as I did my training, I joined Pink Therapy, who are an LGBT association. And ever since then, I've been working with all sexualities, all genders. Um, I do a lot of stuff with alternative relationship styles. And I use the word alternative in kind of a loose way because it's not that they're any different. It's just they're not necessarily right for a lot of people. So things like polyamory, non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy, kink, lots of stuff that people don't necessarily talk about on a day-to-day basis. But I work with lots of people from that perspective. So adults of all ages, online and in person. Wonderful. Thank you. So it'll be a really interesting chat today. We're going to go through a few different subjects. We'll talk a bit about gender identity and sexual orientation and some of the history around sexual orientation in the UK, the sort of legal history a little bit. We'll touch briefly on some of the crisis points that people can experience around these subjects, uh, the recovery uh, points and recovery strategies that work. And of course, recovery is a deeply deeply personal thing as is as is gender and sexuality so the two go hand in hand and my first question to both of you really is and it's probably very obvious to you but to a newcomer uh, might be interesting to hear the story of why did you think that there was a need for a counselling service specifically for LGBTQ plus people? Yeah maybe I'll, I'll start with that um, I think having grown up in in Essex and around London area and um, when I moved to Devon which was about 25 years ago I was kind of aware that yeah there, there weren't so many uh, diverse people that were kind of visible um, in in uh, in this area so as I became a counsellor I was aware that there were sort of few and far between LGBT counsellors you know as as counsellors but also sort of advertising that they were affirmative so when I say affirmative that means sort of inclusive and and kind of knowledgeable about the differences that someone who's lesbian gay bisexual transgender could experience so that that was the reasoning for setting up that in the first place and yes it's developed and evolved and I kind of feel there's a lot of sort of peer support as well within the the counsellors network as well so for me as a, a therapist it's it's been really great to sort of build on that and you know be able to discuss different things that are cropping up in within the media or social media that relate to lgbt plus people so yeah that's that's the reasoning behind it fantastic 
and uh, it's been running for how many years now? I started that in 2009 and I previously qualified as a counsellor the year before. I wanted to make a difference quite quickly and yeah, look to my peers and, and help other people in LGBT communities as well. I think it's quite important that when clients come to us, we're not relying on them for education. I think it's really important that we know stuff and understand things so that they don't have to spend half the session trying to explain stuff to us so that we understand it better. I think a lot of counsellors don't necessarily understand or appreciate the dynamics and differences in different sexualities and genders. So I think that's one of the reasons it's really useful that there are organisations like It's All About You because it means that people know where they stand. They don't have to ask the counsellor if they understand what sexuality or gender means to them. Yeah, that not having to educate the person who's supporting you makes a huge difference to the therapeutic process and at, and at Recovery Devon that's why we're very open about our own lived experience so that when people come to us for support or understanding they know that they don't have to explain where they're coming from before they can even get involved it's, it's really important. You know that really comes across with Recovery Devon and that's really amazing and I think also there are things that can communicate whether you're knowledgeable so things like having you know a rainbow on your website might, might sound oh yeah that's a rainbow but for people that might be within that community um it, it is a bit like a, a symbol really amazing the power of a symbol that just lets you know yeah we, we know you we know what you're about you mentioned the rainbow my my first experience of the rainbow because i had no idea it had anything to do with lgbt stuff Okay. And it was when my brother came out, so I would have been about 24 and he was around about 18 and he'd, um, he'd been in Canada and come home with a rainbow necklace, which didn't mean anything to me whatsoever, except when my mum sat me down and said, I want to have a conversation about your brother and the fact that he's now dating someone and that someone happens to be male and that's why he's got a rainbow necklace on because that's associated with LGBT and that's his way of being proud about it. And I'm like, oh, okay never had any idea before whereas I think now a lot of people kind of they recognize the rainbow as that symbol yeah yeah it's become quite automatic hasn't it it's interesting having all the rainbows in windows as well during lockdown and the clapping for the NHS that was because we got rainbow flags all over our house so we just stuck them in the window <laughs> it's great that, that is that's quite interesting because you know I, I did hear a number of um, LGBT people saying oh yeah we've got the rainbow wherever we walk so it's quite like a yeah like a affirming or I don't know positive kind of symbol yeah it's, it's quite interesting that one there are all sorts of different flags and things for different you know the l the g the b the t and just to say that the plus in lgbt plus is about you know all the different gender identities and, and other sexual orientations uh, within the LGBT umbrella as you'd say so yeah there's all sorts of different flags and yeah different colours and, and symbols for, for different things but yeah the, the sort of generic rainbow one I guess that's one that you see at, at pride events and things like that. Um, I like the one that's being shown a lot at the moment where you've got the rainbow flag and you've got the, like a triangle cut out of the left hand side of it and it's got a mix of the trans and and other things so that's that's really nice and really inclusive yeah, yeah. i've seen that one no yeah. i used to be with street heat the summer band so we used to lead the pride parade through extra every year and uh the big long rainbow flag and there was always a stall selling flags and i noticed over the like, years i was with the bands the flag stall got bigger <laughs> which <laughs> was just a lovely symbol of how awareness and, and pride was growing you know in a very real sense people were searching for symbols to carry to show their sexual orientation their gender identity um, that was really nice to see somebody making a mint as well. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, th there's an organisation called um, LGBT Plus uh, Umbrella, I think, and they just brought out recently. They did um, like a little booklet, and I think there's something like over 120, you know, different labels as, as you would call it. So, uh, you know, within the LGBT Plus communities. So, yeah, I thought that's quite an interesting thing to do with labels and then you know sort of being part of a community or feeling part of a community and inclusiveness and how for some people who might identify out of the heteronormative groups might find it very empowering to to have a, a symbol that's specific to how they how they identify.
both gender identity wise and also sexual orientation. I really love badges anyway. So like being a teenager in the 1980s, I just had loads and loads of badges then. And it's almost like like collecting them now with different sort of slogans and things. So, yeah. Me, from a personal perspective, I actually have my earrings. So I've actually got um, a rainbow coloured going down the side. And then I've got pink, yellow and blue to signify specifically pansexual as a subsection of LGBT. So maybe that's a good uh, lead into talking about different um, subsections and gender, gender identities. Yeah. So this, this podcast will be listened to by a whole variety of people, some of whom are probably certain of their gender identity. And I'm conscious that will also be listened to by people who are perhaps struggling with their gender identity. I think it's a really interesting subject. I could probably talk about it for ages, but um, kind of in a nutshell. So when people are born, they are assigned a gender at birth. And that is actually based on what, what the person's body looks like. So that like your biology for not everyone, it's really explicit which gender they are. So um, there are some people who are born with ambiguous genitalia. So I've got um, a really good handout, actually, and you can't see it on this podcast, but maybe it could be included in any follow up links. And it's called the gender bread person. So it actually looks like based on a a ginger gingerbread person but we call it the genderbread person and there's different formats as well you can get genderbread unicorns and and all sorts of different (laughs) i love it yeah which is really cool it talks about the different where it shows the different things so for gender identity it points to the brain okay so that's about how someone would identify within their almost like in their head who they are gender wise and then gender expression so that's sort of around the body so it's how someone may choose to present you know using clothes or uh, makeup or hair color or um, you know sort of hairstyles and things like that and it it, I guess it part of that is also about characteristics as well and then biological sex so sex and gender you know sometimes get a bit conflated get mixed up a bit confused yeah so that's to do with the bits that you see in the bath, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, so everyone's assigned a, a gender at birth because it goes on your birth certificate and all other legal sort of documentation. But gender identity actually develops around the age of sort of five or six or seven. Um, so it develops really quite early on in childhood development. And it's the sense of who they are, you know, with, within themselves, uh, gender wise. And obviously, growing up, first going to school, you know, I kind of thought about this um, because uh, I'm a trans man. So I was assigned female at birth, but um, very early on as I was growing up, I had this sense of confusion because everyone was telling me I was a girl. But actually, I, I know, I know or I knew that I'm a boy. So it's almost like having to figure out who you are and, and not. Yeah, it's sort of quite a tricky thing to to try to um, describe to people that might not have actually considered gender uh, before. So when I do this in training, I ask everyone to sort of consider when they were growing up, their view of themselves as in, you know, did they feel okay that they were assigned female or male? And for quite a lot of people who, you know, might not have had any sort of gender identity issues, um, they, they said, well, actually, I haven't actually thought about it before because society is telling me I'm one way and I haven't sort of had to question that or that hasn't felt incongruent. So that's something that can play out, you know. So I was thinking about my first pair of shoes that I that I needed, you know, for a school uniform. And um, they were kind of girl shoes. And I was like absolutely devastated because I wanted the boys shoes that lived next door, you know. So things like uniforms in in schools and sort of being separated into the boys line or the girls line. There's there's a a whole sort of heap of different things that do um, distinguish between genders. And there are some people that don't identify with either male nor female. So some people identifies non-binary so male female is, is a very binary um, 
description really so so some people feel that they don't fit in or that they don't um, see themselves as either male or female some people possibly experience a bit of a journey between the two so it might be that they call themselves gender fluid and other people might identify themselves as um, agender or bigender so I think it's about you would see on this this really neat sort of handout that there's a, a, a spectrum so there's a, a line for each of the things so gender identity gender expression biological sex but um, it's not really to me it's not as simple as kind of one or the other so on my gender bred person it's more like a matrix kind of system uh, with uh, yeah different connections and lines you know it's, it's a real 3d effect so um, yeah it's not always as simple as it seems well it sounds like a fascinating exercise to have a go at your gender bred person i can't wait to see the handout max and give it a try i wanted to ask you both a question about age and uh, different generations and their approaches to gender identity and sexual orientation which might lead us into a bit of a conversation about history and politics maybe there seems to be a bit of a perception at the moment that the younger generation are leading the charge on on the issues of uh, gender identity especially and I'm, I'm lucky to have a lot of teenagers in my life and i know that they educate me on a daily basis i'm a woman in my middle years and i've got friends in their 80s friends in their 20s and what I'm finding is that some people are discovering a lot later in life, thanks to this more acceptance from the younger generation, learning things about themselves that perhaps have just had a question mark hanging over them for a long time. I've worked with quite a few clients who have only realised, well, I don't know whether they've realised, but they've had an inkling during their life that only started appreciating the idea that they feel like they're in the wrong gender from the ages of 50 or 60 onwards and I think part of that is the fact that we've got younger people in society being more open about it and there is generally a lot more acceptance than there used to be back in the day but it's also quite sad when these people are then regretting the fact that they didn't notice sooner or didn't do something about it sooner because it's a very hard journey for someone who's coming out at that age and I think it's a lot easier for those especially the kids nowadays who are sort of born five years old and saying, this is my gender, I'm certain of it. They can grow up and they can spend their whole life how they want to be, whereas other people of an older generation haven't had that same opportunity, which I think it's, it's a shame, but it's better late than never. I'm wondering about some of the factors that might make it difficult for people to come out about their sexual orientation and whether some of the historical treatment of homosexuality in particular barrier to people. Yeah, that's very true. When it comes to the history of sexuality, especially in the United Kingdom, because I mean, obviously, everywhere around the world's different and each country's got their own history. But um, I think gay sex here was decriminalised in 1967, or at least when I say here in England, I think it was later, 81 in Scotland, 82 in Ireland, something like that. So obviously, there were lots and lots of gay people around. It's just that if they got caught out doing anything, then like the whole Alan Turing thing, lots of people were thrown in prison just for the person that they loved which i think is horrendous so i think a lot of older people still carry that stigma that because it was wrong and especially with religion as well sinful in some respects i think a lot of older people have carried that and therefore not been able to be out or be themselves about it for me as a 40 something same as max when i was at school and this is something max actually taught me I had no concept of sexuality whatsoever, and that's because of Section 28 coming out. I think that was around 1988. So when I was at school, the whole time I was at school, there was no education about sexuality whatsoever. It was, it's almost, it was completely invisible, like it didn't even exist. And I think there were a lot of people my age who felt quite trapped at that time because they weren't recognised and, and they probably felt quite alienated being at school and, and having, for example, the the odd bit of sex education was very, very heteronormative and not helpful at all to a lot of people. So I think that's had a massive factor on, on my generation. Um, I know the age of consent was changed and equalised to 16 for both sexualities in 2001, which I think was a massive help for a lot of people because there was a lot of inequality before that. Uh, 2005, same-sex parents. Um, so they were allowed to adopt from that age and that was also the same year that they allowed civil partnerships initially so that was making a difference for people in same-sex couples around that time 
then we had the Equality Act in 2010, which kind of it protected orientation and gender amongst other categories, but obviously that, that's made a difference to um, sexuality. And then we had uh, marriage legalised in 2014 in England and Wales. And I think it's only in 2020, I think they've only just done it in Northern Ireland, but at least they've got there eventually, might be six years later. But we've had same-sex marriage for a while, so there are now quite a lot of couples out there, especially ones that I work with, where same-sex marriages for the last five, six years, and it's, it's really lovely that they've got that equality. There's also the idea that when it came to uh, UK history, we also had um, people not being allowed to serve in the military. Um, if they were attracted to the same sex and that didn't change until uh, didn't change officially until 2016 but I think they stopped policing it from about 2000 onwards and my connection with that is that my granddad's job when he was in the navy or part of his job was to actually root out any gay people and chuck them out of the navy and I'm pretty sure that he later regretted that or regretted that it was something he had to do especially when he found out that his grandson was gay so um yeah i think there's lots of things especially in the uk that have, have had an influence on sexuality and how people present and whether they've been able to be open about who they are or not open about who they are i think it's it's great to hear about all those sort of milestones and there is a really good history sort of timeline about lgbt years of, of different things so we could add that into the the links as well um but we were thinking about what year um homosexuality was declassified as a mental illness um, by the world world health organization so that was 1992 so that was that's not long ago at all is it um and Another one is 2017 in this country, and it's now called the Alan Turing Law. So uh, criminal convictions, so this was of gross indecency against men. So those were pardoned. So um, people had been convicted previously. It was only in 2017 that these convictions have been pardoned to do with yeah, homosexuality. So. And I have yeah, a feeling that not many people were actually given apologies. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a fraction of the people that were actually prosecuted and imprisoned and a yeah. tiny, tiny minority of them got apologies for it. Mm, that's disgraceful. Yeah. And then um, I, I guess there's um, something about possible pathologising of sexual orientation and, and also gender identity. It might be that that leads on to conversion therapies. Um, actually, some people that I've worked with quite recently um, had ECT to do with being gay way back in the day mm -hmm. and they're still affected by by that. I was about to say as far as I'm aware conversion therapy is no longer a thing um, in the UK and in most of the West but I'm sure there are people living with um, you know, conversion explicit conversion therapy historically um, historical trauma or um or maybe you know something by another name that wasn't called conversion therapy was actually about attempting to change behaviors and uh, yeah. especially in religion from that perspective and i think it's um we need to point out um, that there isn't a ban on conversion therapy in this country so it's only you know i was really quite surprised when i found this out because i was just sure that there would be but it's something that the british association of counseling and psychotherapists want to take forward basically yeah. uh, and that is as part of the uh, lgbt surveys yeah so gender dysphoria actually before that it was called gender identity disorder so it's gone through several definitions um, and just recently um, it's been reclassified by the world health organization so that it's no longer classified as a mental health condition or disorder um, it's now called gender incongruence and it's been put in the sexual health category yeah it's a bit of a an odd one putting it there i don't know whether it is 
the best place to put it but I think it's you know an improvement Mm -hmm. and I think the idea of is that it reduces the stigma but it's also recognizing that there are necessary health interventions that are still needed so no I think it's good in that respect I think in some countries uh, or particularly in America it was put in the mental health or mental illness section so that people could get access to medical you know interventions I think it's a really good big step forward really gender dysphoria as it was it describes the unease or a sense of distress that someone feels because a sense of who they are there's a mismatch between their sex that was assigned at birth so male or female and their felt sense of who they are regarding their gender identity you know this can have an impact on people so not everyone who identifies as trans experiences gender dysphoria or as the new terms called gender incongruence but some people who do feel that um, it can lead to feelings of isolation and depression, anxiety, and also suicidal thoughts as well. And I think, you know, um, as people choose to come out, if they do, and transition socially, and sometimes if they want to access medical help for, uh, you know, it might be that they're, they're taking hormone replacement treatment or they might have surgery to sort of realign their body with who they are gender wise the gender dysphoria becomes more gender euphoria so it's a kind of you know a a sort of yeah a shift kind of to being living in the world as their true gender so you know it's really important I think just wanted to read out actually so this uh, little quote is from the coordinator of the world health organization and it says it is time for the world to recognize and celebrate the rich diversity of human nature i just think that's a really nice term because it's about diversity and people who are trans or non-binary yeah they're part of the human condition and it's, it's all okay Lovely. I love hearing these words like euphoria and celebrate in this context, because I think sometimes we can focus too much on dysphoria and the incongruence. And uh, of course, that's an important and necessary part of the journey. But there's there's high points, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, like, like you said, um, I think it's really good to emphasise there are positives. And I think as positives are almost owned by trans people, their voices become sort of louder within society or they're not so um, invisible so um, yeah there's a a kind of owning of who they are and um, yeah hopefully some more rights can be gained as well. Gender dysphoria there's a bit of a perception sometimes in the mainstream that it's a a new thing and it's almost a trendy thing And, and my feeling about that is that no it's always been there it's just that we talk about it now yeah absolutely I think as you say um yeah both of you it, it has always been here and there's there's quite a history of uh, gender identities through the ages and different culture cultures as well so Native American two-spirit people who were revered for you know having a combination of, of male and female sort of attributes and and uh, uh, yeah I find that really fascinating as well yeah, I, I'm actually someone that just came out quite recently, only five years ago, actually, as as trans. Um, so, you know, in my mid-40s. So, and it was quite interesting. And I, I was sort of wondering whether it was, like you just said, you know, the sort of emergence of the topic and the issues there being more talked about that um, maybe sparked me. Yeah, I'm not quite sure about that. I think it's kind of... <laughs> getting towards 45 you know it's sort of like a an age that I thought oh no actually I've had a bit of a crisis point and I came out and feel really a lot happier about living my authentic life but um yeah so go uh, talking about sort of younger people because when I was a, a teenager or even earlier than that there wasn't anything called the gender identity development services like there is in the England at the moment which is the Tavistock and Portman Clinic that's for young people under the age of 18. It's interesting sort of question you know um, yeah would I come out a lot earlier I probably would but 
yeah, I've, I've been doing quite a lot of therapy recently and it's about, yeah, looking at my sort of younger years and coming to terms with that life, you know, and the different parts of me. And I've been talking to my younger parts of me and that's been really sort of interesting dialogue and being compassionate towards my earlier self didn't have the words necessarily to to know what to say about this because it's a very it's quite an isolating thing because obviously it's to do with yourself and um, how you present in the world so in order to be true to who you are you actually have to sort of communicate that in some way to the outside world or if you choose to come out it's a quite an interesting process but there are lots of different ways that you can come out gender wise I think because there is a lot more openness and as you were saying Em about teenagers at the moment there's a lot more affirmative stuff going on which is really good to see. It strikes me that a lot of teenagers and younger people anyone in their 20s and 30s they seem more happy to use different pronouns so for example they'll use they rather than he or she and I think that's given them permission to explore a bit. So a lot of non-binary people will be they for a while, or they might change back to she, or they might change to he. Um, I think they've got more of a language for doing these things now, helped along by, by places or platforms like Facebook, where they actually give you the option to be a he, she, or they. So for example, I'm listed as a they, which means that when it comes up, it says wish them happy birthday rather than wish her or him happy birthday. I can't remember the name of the comedian, but oh, what's the name? Hannah Gadsby. I watched... Uh... Hannah Gadsby stand up recently and she said that she loved uh, the American y'all <laughs> it's like in a plural pronoun oh, that's really good oh. y'all that's quite inclusive isn't it that's just anybody <laughs> yeah, like that's that. great I love that y'all yeah I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that one be the yeah. UK version of y'all I think <laughs> <laughs> yeah at the moment there seems to be um a general thing where um people addressing um like you know more than one or like groups of people will say hey guys and guys this and guys that and I just recognize that that's for someone who has gender identity issues or, or queries or questions that that's a pretty difficult thing to say so so I've been trying to introduce folks you know hi folks how you doing hi people you know, that kind of thing so it's inclusive of all gender identities I do the same when I'm working in as much as with partners. I try to say partner rather than he, she, because I like to just keep it open and broad more of the time. All of these little things are one less barrier for somebody to overcome in uh, seeking support. And they, they make a big difference, don't they? You really, really notice when you haven't had to climb a barrier to, to be understood. So we, we talked a little bit there about coming out. And I wonder if we could touch on some of the, the crisis points that people might experience around um, gender identity and sexual orientation. So I think coming out is the one that most people would recognise. But are there are there any others? Some of the things that, you know, to sort of say about crisis points, it, it might be someone has mental ill health on top of there being a crisis point about their gender identity or, or sexual orientation. So that can exacerbate things. So not specifically just because you're LGBT, that that's seen as a you know, mental ill health or that you're more prone to you know, to things like depression or anxiety. Yeah, those groups, um, there are well-known studies that self-harm and maybe suicidal ideation is the thing as well. So, yeah, so coming out to yourself, but also coming out to others. So they've seen as a self and, you know, society. And some people might choose to come out to, to specific people, trusted people. It might be therapists as well. It might be friends. And then gauge what the situation is with them. And then, you know, some people might choose to come out to fa other family members and they work uh, to work colleagues and, and different processes. So it could be seen a bit like a, not a spiral, but yeah, just different parts to it, really. I'm interested in you saying about coming out to yourself. So can, can you say a bit about coming out to yourself? You'd mentioned internalised shame and phobia as even possibilities that, that might be around for some people. Yeah, so I think gender identity wise, you know, you get these messages that don't you from society that girls should do this and boys should do that and you know I know it's different in different cultures and there might be different aspects to it but it's almost like taking on what is you know how you're supposed to be so anything different to that norm normative message it can cause you know shame within and inside you and a realization that you're different to others so um, 
you know, it might be that you do things to cover up um, who you truly are because you, you feel you're, you're different and that will have implications for you and, you know, maybe family members as well. So, and I think it's a really strong thing, you know, um, conformity to sort of societal expectations is amazingly strong. There's loads of psychological stuff that backs this up to do with conformity. It might be you, you think, oh, yeah, I'm like an activist and I, I can yeah I can withstand that but I think it's a very fine line really and that's a lot of pressure as well isn't it when you're going through your own process to also be an activist and an educator you said minority stress yeah so minority stress so it might be imperceptible you know so others might not perceive that the stress that it can cause trying to conform and you know that can have different effects on on people like it can lead to depression anxiety self-harm feeling of needing to repress who you truly are for the sake of conforming to who you think society thinks you should be so you know I don't think it's as clear-cut growing up for me certainly at bits that I kind of cut off from myself to protect myself so and I think that's a very well-known and common thing to happen really yeah so minority stress it might be that something's triggered by something in the social media like on Facebook or um, in the media I know for other trans people at the moment there's a lot of stuff going on with the gender reform act and some small groups of radical feminists are sort of saying that trans women aren't women and trans men aren't men and non-binary people aren't valid so it's it's almost like a, a weapon against people's authentic selves so it's it's very hard to um, to listen to so I don't always listen to that I switch it off sometimes yeah I think it's worth mentioning when we're talking about minorities there are minorities within the trans group so you've got intersectionality where you've got either say people of color or of a different nationality to the ones that, that in the country they're in there's a lot of white privilege as well so i think it's hard enough for a lot of trans people to come out come out let alone a person of color in say a white privileged country coming out and or someone who's disabled or even especially, I suppose, the age thing comes into it as well. People coming out at a much later age, it, there are more barriers for those people who are in those minorities compared to, say, for example, young, white, Western, more privileged people. It's hard enough for them. I think even harder for some of the others. So how can counselling help people who might have been through a crisis point or struggling with minority stress or internalised shame? Yeah, and this could be someone who sees themselves as a specialist LGBT plus counsellor, but it could be, um, you know, generic counsellors. So I think the main thing is about validation and acceptance. So those things are about validating someone's experience and um, of who they, who they are and having that acceptance. So not being judgmental or making assumptions. I think those all those things they're the sort of goals of the things that you learn when you're training to be a counsellor so hopefully you'd have that with everyone but um, I think specifically with with people that may feel that marginalisation um, on, on different levels those things are really important. I think normalising is really important making it helping the client know that they're not the only ones who've been through this and it is normal and it is natural and there's nothing weird or strange or unusual about them yeah yeah and it, it, it's interesting because you know I can remember doing biology at school and um, it was only later that um, I was doing biology in a, a psychology lesson and there are within the animal kingdom there are gay animals you know there's I remember reading a study about lesbian seagulls and I thought oh this is brilliant you know and and so we're part of all this you know this human and animal race really we're we are all different there are different parts to everyone so what helpful things can people do in general to normalize and uh, reduce stigma have you got any suggestions for listeners yeah i think what you said earlier ria about um people knowing that there's others out there and they're not like alone because i think it can be quite tricky to maybe go to a pride event on your own if you if you haven't met anyone else but I think 
actually knowing that there are pride events and there are other people you know similar to yourselves that can be really helpful and connecting with peers as well so talking about specific things there's lots of different groups um, in Devon and Cornwall you know southwest so there's non-binary southwest there's western boys these are sort of gender identity ones uh, there's trans women's groups as well there's there's a whole heap of different um, all sorts of groups for you know, people of different sexual orientations, choirs, walking groups, you know, as well as club stuff or things that you might think that LGBT people might go to, like whatever that be. Yeah, so I think it's uh, about, yeah, maybe connecting with other people. And it might be that there's, there's people in the media that are quite visible and quite, they talk about their, their personal journey but they don't speak for everyone. I think that's that's sort of important to say. Um, so you don't have to be like them, but it's about being yourself, really. Yeah, that's where a wide variety of stories can be really, really helpful. And a lot of the recovery movement is about personal stories because you, it's amazing when you hear something like your story coming out of the mouth of somebody else. It sort of gives power to your own experience as well. One of the wonderful things about the internet as well, the fact that people can have these experiences all over the world and they can connect with people all over the world, it, it widens the whole arena. Yes, yeah, so if there weren't many people in your immediate community having a similar experience to you, there's this global community where you're more likely to find somebody who has a similar story to yours. It's one of the wonderful things about the internet, long may it continue. And Max, you were just saying about the importance of connection, and of course connect is one of the five ways to well-being. And part of recovery is uh, looking at the whole picture, what makes you fully human. So, of course, therapy is important. Medication is important for many people. Um, but it's the things that bring you alive and that can often be really important part of healing process and recovery process. How does allyship tie in with that? So I think it's about knowing that there's other people that might not be necessarily LGBT plus, but they value you. For, for you and they will be there for you maybe help you through tricky times if there are tricky times I and mean, that we're all human yeah and I think um that touches a bit on what I said a bit earlier so having come out as a, a trans guy or actually that's the weird thing in itself because I'm thinking oh yeah I'm a trans guy but actually I'm just a guy I don't have to put the trans bit there before do you know what I mean so there's all this kind of narrative around labels how you see yourself what meaning you put on different things so yeah I think it's a bit like creating new meaning so there's something very powerful about seeing your your name that you've changed yourself you know that's different from the one that you were given at birth possibly and your birth certificate that says boy rather than girl so there are some milestones that are more practical, but um, I guess there's psychological ones as well. And it's about maybe not seeing like an end point uh, to your journey. It's about, I think this is where mindfulness comes in. It's about appreciating where you are on this kind of journey. I know people say journey a lot, but it is, I guess everyone's life is a journey, isn't it? So it's not just trans people or or gay people that have a journey you know everyone has their journey um, but it's about um i guess having kept a secret almost as i was growing up and then finding that really just not able to talk about that so it kind of all got buried when that has opened out and i've kind of told people about it i just feel so much more alive i think so yeah it's about kind of noticing things lifting a bit of fog from my life and and doing things that you want to do you know not letting things stop you so so for some people who might identify maybe as non-binary it's about yeah that's okay people shouldn't have to define themselves as a man or a woman and that can be tricky but um, I think there's a lot of people that are doing that more and more at the moment I'm really struck by the power of not having to self-edit and police yourself takes a lot of mental energy so to have that removed even though it's probably quite a, a delicate process for a lot of people and can be a time of a time that needs a lot of care can be also very liberating and a huge yeah. relief yeah and I think 
for me is navigating my way through that so it takes a lot of energy but not having to self-edit is amazing but there are all sorts of things to do with body you know your body that are tricky as well and you know there's lots of waiting lists for different things surgeries and getting to see specialists about more medical um, aspects but not all trans people want to do medical transition so it's about difference isn't it and diversity within certain communities so i wonder if we wrap it up with talking a bit more about recovery you mentioned the kind mind course do you want to tell me a bit more about that yeah it was a, it was a course that um that i put together and delivered for groups of lgbt plus people um, and it's based on compassionate mindfulness so the first one i did was um, a 10-week course and it was really amazing actually you know people sort of coming together for the first time and some of the people i mean i think there's this sort of myth that lgbt people all know each other and are all kind of all get on and um and all go to pride and stuff like that but i think for some of the groups that um i delivered this training course to or this this course to they hadn't been to pride they didn't know any other people you know that were similar to them the internalized shame was massive and yeah so it was it worked really well kind of so compassionate mindfulness is about being kind to yourself um, that's why we called it kind mind and it seemed to link in really well so there are different exercises and it, it kind of takes like daily practice to to be compassionate towards yourself and towards others it's a very healing way of looking at things approach and the mindfulness is about not looking back to the past and not focusing maybe obsessively about future stuff but being in the present moment and yeah all different exercises for that and it, it worked out really well because it was um bringing together groups of people that felt marginalized and um it's like psychoeducation about yeah you you're fine as you are you don't you don't need to change it's about you yeah being kind to yourself um, being true to yourself I'm reminded of a lovely tweet that i saw one pride month and it just it was like hashtag pride by the way introverts be gay too <laughs> there is a lot of pressure on people to be out and a, a lot of pressure on people to have to tell every single other person that they're out and proud a lot of people are just comfortable just being who they are and maybe out to a couple of friends or their partner and that's good enough so max i gather that um you've had a wonderful endorsement recently from the school for social entrepreneurs are we okay to talk about that oh yes thank you for bringing that up yeah so yeah i'm really excited because i've just got a place um on the school for social entrepreneurs so i've written a course actually for trans people um and um so part of this um placement on the school of social entrepreneurs is to actually develop this course so put it on and and develop an app as well which is a self-care toolkit to go with it so i'm like it's almost like it's um something that's always been with me and i've kind of it's almost like yeah i've wanted to do this for ages and ages so it's um, one of the weeks is about compassionate mindfulness another week is about feel the fear and do it anyway which is based on the book by Susan Jeffers and then there's a bit about body positivity there's a bit about the emotional and practical tasks of changing your name and creative ways to to help yeah so self therapy and nourishing yourself as well so yeah so I'm really excited about that and yeah hopefully it will get it's all about you out there as well so more people will be able to access different things yeah I'll let you know how that's going oh yeah do i'm really glad that you've had that endorsement i think that's yeah. that's fantastic fantastic for you but fantastic for everybody who's going to receive that course and benefit from it so yeah great news um so before we wrap up would you like to tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you i'm, I'm always thinking about the person who's listening to this podcast and thinking oh actually i think i need to access a bit of help with something that's being discussed today maybe start with ria i'm available on the it's all about you well-being 
uh, website. My contact details are on there, but equally, if people want to look up reapearson.com, they can. I offer local services in Exeter and to Devon and online via Skype and Zoom. And my general thing is that I work with all genders, all sexualities and all relationship styles. I do like working with diversity. And how about you, Max? How do we find you? You can find me maxcoenwellbeing.com or through It's All About You Wellbeing. I'm a counsellor and it's mainly LGBT plus people that I see, but actually it's a whole heap of other people as well. So I do support quite a lot of people who've got family members who are LGBT plus as well, or people that might be questioning their, their gender identity or sexual orientation. But I also work with fear as well. So like feel the fear and do it anyway. So I'm a licensed facilitator to work with groups and individuals. So that's based on Susan Jeffers book. And there's going to be courses for trans people. I would like to do another compassionate mindfulness course as well for LGBT plus people. And I do training as well. So organisations. So it could be you know, third sector or, you know, private companies or statutory agencies around LGBT issues. Yeah, so it could be a small company like Soul Trader who like to sort of be more inclusive of LGBT customers or employees. Um, yeah, the website is good because we've got lots of resources as well. So I'll put some of these on on the website. And also we've got other well-being practitioners so we've got someone who does pilates we've got someone that massage therapy so it's not just counselors it's other well-being practitioners as well we encourage people to become a part of this as well if, if you're out there and you practice in something please get hold of us and we'll have a chat about that that's great and i love that you've brought in um organizational training there that just speaks again to the sort of collective effort it's not down to each individual to cut their way and find their solutions there's a there's a whole raft of support out there for people and it's happening at an organizational even a, a national level beginning to and that's that's really encouraging to see so i'll finish by saying thanks so much ria and max for giving us your time so generously today and letting us know about the work that you do really hope that this speaks to anybody out there who is looking for a bit of support in these areas thank you very much both thanks it's been great being part of this and yeah brilliant Thank you for listening. If you have ideas which explore mental health directly or in imaginative ways, perhaps you'd like to create our next podcast. If you don't know how or don't have any equipment for recording, we'll do what we can to help. Simply contact us. Our email is community at recoverydevon.co.uk. Recovery Devon is a community interest company supported by the Devon Partnership Trust.